Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and as for my co-host on this show, the always informative and entertaining Dan Z. Dan, have you actually had a chance to unpack since we last talked? Because you just got back from a very cool place. Indeed I did. I, uh, I think I'm 90% unpacked. I, mm-hmm. As you know, I think you refer to it as a ninja trip, and I, I kind of had that in my the back of my mind the entire time, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're, we're pretty close and got lots of great stories to share with everybody too. So that's what we call in the business a tease, folks. So Dan will get to <laughs> describing this place and what he saw in the second half of the show. But as for how we're going to start off this week, we're actually going to jump right back into what we wound up talking about on our last show. In fact, like an hour or so before you and I recorded our last looking at Lucasfilm, Dan, the news about the Mandalorian broke. It did, and then after we actually recorded, then even more news broke on it. Just to review here, the baseline on this thing is it's a 10-episode series that's supposed to run on Disney Play, the subscription streaming service that the Walt Disney Company is launching next year. And See, I wonder, because they already have an app called Disney Play. It's that gaming thing that they have when you're at the theme parks. I do do not know what to tell you about that. Yeah, isn't that weird? Every so often, Disney will reuse a name, but let's review here. So John Favreau is the executive producer of, of this series called The Mandalorian, and he's directing the very first episode of what's supposed to be a $100 million production overall. But did you see that photograph that Favreau put out on his his Instagram feed of oh, yes. who else? Directing this thing, it's, a, it's Dave Filoni. That's right. He's going to direct the very first episode. I know they're on set right now. Sounds like it's going beautifully from what I've been told. But for me, what's fascinating is who else has been invited to play in this sandbox. I mean, we've got, for example, Bryce Dallas Howard, the star of the first two Jurassic World films, but also the daughter of Ron Howard. We have Deborah Chow, who's done a number of episodes for Netflix of the that Jessica Jones series. I'm just thrilled to see that, given how fun Thor Ragnarok was, I'm I'm thrilled that th- that director has also been asked to do an episode of The Mandalorian. I mean, what this tells me, and, and you too, I'm sure, is that this is this is something they're taking incredibly seriously. I mean, with a $100 million production value budget, that's a big deal. But they're bringing in, they're not bringing in amateurs. They're bringing in hardcore directors who have major reputations. I mean, I guess... Dave hasn't really done too much live action. I think this might be his first foray into live action, but he's got years and years and years of experience working at Lucasfilm in animation, and he's he's very respected in the community and in Hollywood. And I like this. To me, this is like his, and I don't mean this uh, as a pejorative, I mean this is the utmost compliment. To me, this is more like training wheels for when he eventually, hopefully, gets a feature Star Wars film. In fact, Freddie Prinze Jr., who voices Kanan Jarrus from Star Wars Rebels on Coffee with Kenobi a number of times, told us, hey, I totally expect Dave to direct a live-action Star Wars movie at some point. This isn't breaking news. This is just uh, hopeful speculation. But 
to me, this is the step to a larger world, as they say. That's great to hear. But speaking of hardcore, I mean, what's been funny for me is to watch how the Star Wars fan community kind of loses its mind whenever John puts another photo on Instagram. Did did you see what happened when he put that shot of the the long rifle up online? Um, Oh, yeah. All right. I want to make sure I get the name of this right. The Ambin Phase Pulse Blaster? That sounds right to me. But the thing is, the reason that the Star Wars fan community lost its mind is that this is something that Boba Fett was shown, you know, I, I don't think he actually used it during the Star Wars holiday special, during that, that animated section of it. But the fact that here is this weapon in the flesh, so to speak, and it's showing up as part of the Mandalorian. Likewise, I guess there was a, a photograph of a cantina, but in much in the classic Star Wars style. And I guess the the log line for this show, and I'm, I'm quoting the the official press release here, is a lone gunfighter who travels to the outer reaches of the galaxy far beyond the authority of the New Republic. I've been told by friends at Disney that this character travels in wild space. There is evidently a plan within the first 10 episodes of having this show do a show on Batu. Wow. I mean, it looks like it just based on that one image alone, just the background, kind of that, that desert sort of market feel to it, which is what mm-hmm. we've seen both in the Timothy Zahn novel as well as the all of the artwork for Galaxy's mm-hmm. Edge. We actually got a listener question from Brian Hind, who's a, a DVC member. Awesome. He sent me a note and he was asking, he says that he and his family will be traveling Anaheim for the first time in july of next year or mid-july of next year and they want to know if you and i know for sure whether star wars galaxy's edge will be open at that time oh gosh yeah i wish i could be definite about this brian but the hard reality is that right now star wars galaxy's edge at least the anaheim version the only language disney will use is that it's supposed to open in the late spring early summer of 2019 and i have to caution you that just recently i've had a number of friends in the industry reach out and it's like are you hearing the same thing i'm hearing that disneyland's galaxy's edge is behind schedule i have to get that confirmed but let me make some calls to your friends in imagineering and folks who who work at the disneyland resort and see what they're hearing i heard this on the disney dish podcast with jim hill and len testa that's how i found out about it yeah well don't trust anything those two idiots say <laughs> those oh heckle and jekyll over there that's right Oof, <laughs> those guys i know it would just kill people to travel all that way to make a special trip to be among the first to to go to August right. Cantina and and not be able to miss the opening by inches. Well, let me ask you a question. Yeah, I mean, you you will have some obviously you have some a lot of experience with this kind of thing. Typically, when Disney opens something of this magnitude, well, probably nothing has been opened to this magnitude. I guess the new Fantasyland, but this has even more I think hype to it. And of course, I'm a little biased because it's Star Wars. But mm-hmm. how long does Disney kind of let people know? Hey, this is the definitive day because obviously they want hype. They want people to travel. They want to maximize everybody's vacation time and dollar. So how how long would be reasonable for them to say, hey, this is the date? Realistically, Disney would love to be able to give people, say, six months. No, That's what I was going to guess. We'll be open by this time. In fact, to see when Disney began doing the first really big ad buys, for example, for Toy Story Land, I want to say the first ad for that actually debuted 
Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. They did that footage of the slinky dog bouncing the, the giant Pixar ball through the canyons of New York. And she, so that was almost eight months out. But again, I think at that point they were like, you know, Toy Story Land opening in next year, 2018. We'll get back to you on a date. And they were running and gunning on that one. They just barely made their, their opening. In fact, they got that thing open so late that they did the annual pass holder special. Normally, these are special preview events. Mm-hmm. The annual pass holders get exclusive access to a land out ahead of the general public. They were so late in opening this that they actually had to hold those in September, which was a full three months after the land officially opened. Oh, wow. I think the land that's probably the easiest comparison to Galaxy's Edge is over at Universal. It's, yeah. it's Diagon Alley. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember that Diagon Alley, which was supposed to originally open for Memorial Day, in 2014 due to a really wet spring i want to say didn't open till july 6th of oh, that wow. year well i mean that is definitely the uh, an apt comparison i let's just i hope that for all of our teacher listeners mm-hmm. out there including myself i hope that it the summer thing happens because i really want to go and during the school year is much more difficult but i mean they don't usually need help with the summer traffic but I'm no, I'm kind of more interested to see what they do with Florida because I guess I don't understand Jim why is there such a huge delay when it's the exact same scopes the exact same size why is Disneyland so far ahead two things one is that when it comes to Disneyland Imagineering is just 30 miles up the road okay so they have kind of a an advantage in that like hey we have a problem it's like you get in the car and you drive there and you can handle it that way. Where is Orlando? These are both 14-acre properties, and Orlando is 3,000 miles away. You know, it's a plane trip. Also, Disney had already turned the key on this project when Bob Chapek was shown the plans for the Star Wars Hotel and went, oh, I want one of those. And now suddenly you've got to fold that into the design, never mind that for Disney's Hollywood Studios, it wasn't just that they were building Star Wars land. They were also building sort of the opening act, you know, Toy Story land. True. And that granted to hit some hiccups. And, you know, there were some construction teams that were supposed to be able to come off of that pivot to work on Star Wars. That frankly, they had to throw a lot more bodies at Star Wars land to get it open close to on time. They're playing catch up in Florida. That coupled with the fact that, again... They have to do all of this stuff to make sure that when the Star Wars Hotel opens up in Orlando, there's supposed to be a seamless transportation experience that gets you from the hotel, keeps you in story, in much the same way that the Hogwarts Express keeps you in story as you move from Diagon Alley to Hogsmeade or back sure. and forth. But the hotel's opening much later, though, right? I mean, is that is that currently being built, too, or are they still planning that? As of right now, the language they're using for the Anaheim version is late spring, early summer of 2019. And when it comes to the Orlando version, the language is late fall, early winter. And, and remember, winter starts December 21st. So if you're looking forward to getting into August Cantina might be a wait. Now, speaking of which, we do have some additional information uh, about this watering hole at Black Spire Outpost. The alien proprietor of this cantina is Olga Gara. And for you 
Star Wars Completus out there. That's spelled G-A-R-R-A. Thank you. That that is me. I am one of those. Okay. <laughs> Friends at, at Imagineering have sort of clued me in to what the Disney Flavor Lab, those are the folks who create all of the specialty food and beverage for the that served at the restaurants around the Disney parks and resorts, what they've been working on for August Cantina. It's going to have a full menu of themed cocktails, mocktails, which, uh, again, that's non-alcoholic specialty drinks, as well as proprietary beer and wine. And in fact, supposedly, I'm trying to get it in the name of the outfit that's doing the wine, but they've already grown the grapes, they've harvested them, and they're supposedly fermenting now. But this is a menu that's supposed to service adults and kids. So, again, you have your proprietary beer and wine. For the kids, what they've decided to do is that a lot of these drinks, whether you're seated at the bar or at the table, there's going to be a last ingredient added or a garnish or that sort of thing that makes this a very theatrical experience. Do you remember the bread from Star Wars Episode Seven? The Force Awakens? The Force Awakens. The, the, uh, that do you Ray remember? Makes. Yep. Yeah. And it's so funny that, that so many people came away from that movie. It's like, wow, the bread that rose in front and then she ate and that sort of thing. That's what they're trying to do with the, both the food and the beverage at Olga's as well as the Supper Club. The cool. notion is that, that as the server comes to the table, there will be one final garnish, one ingredient added, and drinks will change color or fizz or foam. And they've also commissioned a bunch of specialty beverage glasses that sort of thing so that'll sort of facilitate color changing or texture changing and that sort of thing now that sounds cool but i have to caution you that the price points for dining at olga's as well as the supper club that's it's out there start saving your pennies because the basically the model here is be our guest that restaurant in New Fantasyland at the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. They've just introduced a pre-fixed dinner where adults charge $55 and kids are, are charged $35. So for a family of four, just one meal is $180. So, uh, and that's without tax, folks. That's very challenging. That sounds like it's going to be an experience like medieval times kind of a thing you know not to that degree but more like you know you eat and there's a, a sort of a show aspect and you're paying for the environment but you're already paying to get into the park at least in august the thing is that there's going to be a dj playing and it's that our rx24 the the rex droid who used to be the driver from star tours yep and i just heard from friends and imagineer that they have reached out to paul rubens aka Wee herman like the, the groundlings member who voiced Rex back when Star Tours first started operating at, at Disneyland Park back in in 87. He's been asked to, to come back and record some new dialogue and some new bits for Rex. I love that. I love that they're going to have that sort of continuity. And I've told you about Mark Eads before, haven't I? Or The very first time you and I ever chatted on, on Coffee with Kenobi years ago. Yeah, you did. You sure did. You have to interview Mark at some point. He has some of the most amazing Star Wars related stories, largely because he was part of the team that set this up. We talked about how there was supposed to be every three years a new ride film, right? Yeah. Okay. But the thing is, because the lie never died, they just never did the new ride film. You never got to go to Tatooine or that sort of thing. And it got to the point where George Lucas himself got a little impatient about this and 
have I ever told you about when he's making Phantom Menace and he actually calls Imagineering in 97 and says, get up here, I have something to show you? No. Then runs the podcast footage from that film? Oh, really? The pod race, you mean? Yeah. And the Imagineers were so impressed that they went back and drafted a new version, of, finally, of the, the Star Wars, or Star Wars film. Would you like to hear what that experience was going to be like? Oh my goodness, yes. My friend David Koenig, he's the gentleman who wrote the, the Mouse Under Glass book and the Reality Land and some of the very best books that are out there about the Disney parks. In a May 2005 article for Mouse Planet, he actually described this whole experience. So, okay, picture this. We enter the already existing Star Tours building, but as we make our way through the queue, we see we're no longer headed to Endor. Our new destination is the Lunar Olympics on Yavin. And at first glance, star speeders look the same. They seem to be the same 20-year-old models, but they've all been replaced with new state-of-the-art flight simulators, and we've got flat-screen video. This is the, the equipment that will eventually come into Star Tours, the adventure continues. Though what was interesting is that at one point there was talk about passengers actually being able to put on helmets with fiber optics and, and devices that would allow for 3D, sort of the 3D visuals that we saw Luke seeing when he was flying the X-Wing in the trench. Sure. Would have been killer. So the, sc the screen comes down and it's not Rex at the helm anymore. There's a more seasoned veteran. The film begins. We actually see a Starspeeder 3000 in front of us make the f the familiar wrong turn and the, our pilot actually comments on that eh, it must be one of those new droids from sector seven we made our course and we launch the portal straight ahead and we're in this spiral formation with a bunch of other star speeders suddenly we're in a traffic jam we are literally bumper to bumper in space but our, our pilot says wait a minute i know a shortcut so he veers to the side and now he's hopelessly lost and he takes us down to the nearest planet says, all right, let me let me get some directions. And But the thing is, what he does is he pulls us into one of the places where the pit crews of the pod racers are located. And evidently there's a miscommunication and these pit crew thinks, think that our star speeder is a last minute entry in the pod race. And so as we're watching the monitor, we see them strap boosters to the side of our craft and pushes to the line, and then suddenly we're in the middle of the pod race. I'm blanking. Who was the the villainous pod racer? The Saboba. Saboba. Suddenly we're side by side with Saboba, and at one point he tried to, to throw us off track by throwing a bomb at our star speeder, and the screen explodes and appears to fill the cabin. And he's in front of us and, and kicks the afterburners and. We actually feel through the now open glass, like the heat in our faces. But this heat destroys one of the engines and we begin to free fall. We manage to defeat the character. We win, but we slide into the stands. And the kicker for this version of the attraction is as we exit our star speeder, we look back and it's really beaten up. But there in front of us, we have gone through the stands and we can look up and see, you know, look through that and see the pod races continuing. We can see the feet of the various different aliens. And, you know, we, we slide down, you know, walk down from there into the gift shop. What do you think? Would, would you have gone to that, Dan? Oh, my gosh, in a heartbeat. Some of the stories that are out there about the what, what may have been or could have been just fantastic. 
Yeah, it just it makes me crazy when we miss stuff like that. But on the other hand, there, there's the things like the Star Wars Power of Costume touring exhibit, which started back in 2015 and went all over the country, and I still managed to miss it. It just wrapped up in the Detroit Institute of Art uh, back on September 30th. Yeah, it kind of kills me. They they invited me to come to the to the opening of that, but Detroit's mm-hmm. about a four and a half hour drive for me. And I just couldn't make it. And I guess I didn't really realize that this was the very last stop. Had I known yeah. that, I would have made more of a concerted effort to go. Because I was hoping to do it. Yeah, I was hoping it would come to Chicago, but apparently that's not the case. What's kind of surprising to me is I don't see it listed doing any international stops or anything like that. Though, And from what I understand, the Smithsonian Lucasfilm Limited and the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art, they, they collaborated on this exhibit and it was stunning. Don't feel bad, Dan, because if you want to feel bad about missing something, I came across this exhibit. It happened back in 1988. It was done at the Marin County Fair, and it was supposedly done during a period where George Lucas was trying to get locals to feel kindly toward him because he was. this was during the period when he was getting ready to really expand Skywalker Ranch. Have you ever seen any photographs from the Magic of Lucasfilm exhibit that they did for the county fair? No, but I, oh my goodness, I can just, I can only imagine. Somebody has to have gone. So one of the listeners to our show has to have gone to this thing. I, it, it only ran for, I want to say, six days. It was a 15,000 square foot exhibit featuring models, creatures, memorabilia, documenting the Star Wars films. There were also props there from Willow, Indiana Jones, and the Rays of the Lost Ark. They even had some stuff that Fred Island had done for Star Trek. But when Lucas announced that he did this, was going to do this, the fair never, had, to this date, has never had that many people go. Over the, this five and six day run of the fair, they had 130,000 people come to the Marin County Fair. But a large portion of them were there just to see this Lucasfilm exhibit. So somebody, someone who's listened to listens to this show has to have gone, has to have pictures. And if you could share those with, with Dan and myself, I'd really, really, really appreciate it. But I bet of all the cool stuff that they got to see, it wasn't nearly as cool as what Dan got to see this past weekend of thereabouts at Rancho Obi-Wan, right? Yeah, Rancho Obi-Wan. Okay, and we'll get into Dan's stories about visiting that amazing place on the second half of this episode of Looking at Lucent. So hang in there, folks. We'll be right back. And we're back. Let's start with how one gets invited to a really cool place like Rancho Obi-Wan. Okay, so Rancho Obi-Wan is the world's largest Star Wars collection. It's, it's run by the, the CEO of Rancho Obi-Wan, Steve Sansweet, who is a wonderful guy. It's mm-hmm. a 9,000 square foot museum. It used to be home to over 20,000 chickens. Uh, and they basically gutted it and, and put it in the Star Wars collection and uh, Steve is, uh, he retired from Lucasfilm back in 2011. Mm-hmm. He was in charge of fan relations there. Mm-hmm. And he's always had a gigantic collection. I mean, obviously, he started back when A New Hope came out. I think he was in his early 30s then. 
Then he was a writer for the for the Wall Street Journal, and That's I think right. the story goes he was uh, he found like some of the the deconstructed uh, Death Star set that they used to film A New Hope, and he he grabbed that, and that became one of the things of his collection. It's grown leaps and bounds since then, and you can anybody can go. You have to sign up for a tour at RanchoObiWan.org. It is a non for profit, but once a year. They have the gala, the Rancho Obi Wan Gala. I think this is was the sixth year for it. It's my, I this is my third one to go to, third in a row, mm-hmm. and it is absolutely fabulous. You're there for basically seven to eight hours long. They have fully catered meal with you know chefs and dessert, and they have wine tasting. They had a, a poker tournament, and you just go and you have your free run of the museum, and you can talk to Steve. You know he just walks around and, and greets people and. Uh, He's a really, really awesome guy. They they have an auction there. They have a silent auction. And all the money, all the proceeds go to Ranch Obi-Wan because, as I said, it is a non-for-profit place. we got to get you out there sometime because it is fantastic. And, and the nice thing about the gala mm-hmm. is that when you go on these tours, you know, they go anywhere from an hour to four hours on, depending on what kind of questions people have and, and sort of how it goes because they're very small tours. It's more intimate that way. But, you know, you're pretty well, you move along with the tour, and that's it. Mm-hmm. But for the gala, you have your full reign of the place. You're, that's about the only time you'll get it unless you are a Rancho Obi-Wan staff member. So it's it's really, really tremendous. Holy cow. Now, I, I, I think on an earlier episode, you were talking about Steve sharing some pieces of his collection for, what was it, the toys that, that made us, that series yeah. for Netflix. and. The five or ten minutes of footage that, that they, they shot overall as part of the special where, where Steve is sharing his collection, I mean, it, it was stunning. I mean, he has he has one of everything, or, or so, or actually more than one of everything. Yes, more than one. He, he's got, uh, and I'll, I'll send you and, and, and listeners of looking at Lucasfilm, go to uh, go to coffeewithcomer.com or just type in Clayton Sandell, Rancho Obi-Wan, Clayton uh, is an ABC journalist and an awesome guy and a huge, huge Star Wars fan. He did a video, a recent video, uh, with a tour of Rancho Obi-Wan and a conversation with Steve Sansweet and gives you a nice idea, a snapshot of what it is like there. I think you'll really enjoy it. We got to see the prototype Boba Fett rocket launch from the action figure, uh, which is super cool. He, he has uh, so much stuff, and most of the stuff that he has isn't even at the museum on full display because the great thing about ranch obi-wan is they are always recycling stuff so when you go back multiple times mm-hmm. you're going to see new stuff every single time which is pretty mm-hmm. great this is as you said your third visit so what leaped out at you this time that was different from the earlier two visits well he's got a lot more bb-8 stuff <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, for sure well, uh, he's got so okay. no he's got so much bb-8 stuff he's got a gigantic Mm-hmm. Uh, stuffed porg that I think was a giveaway from Toys R Us. He has this gigantic display from The Last Jedi from the world premiere of that with, complete with the Stormtrooper armor. He's got little clips of the red carpet from The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. He even has a piece of Wookiee hair from one of the films from one of Chewie's costumes. At the end of your tour, there's he's got a large collection of these Star Wars video games and the, the cabinet consoles. And the pinball machines, and he's even got some slot machines there now, too. And then on the outside, he's got a replica of the side of the sand crawler, which is, of course, the vehicle that the Jawas travel in, mm-hmm. and a life-size land speeder, and a couple of droids from that scene in A New Hope. 
and that, that's just to name a few things. Dear Lord, um, it's it's absolutely mind blowing. You could get you just get lost there. The nostalgia is great, and I'm a I'm a collector back from the beginning too. So when I see all of the Kenner action figures, which he's got all of them in this gorgeous round display, as soon as you walk down the steps, uh, still in their packages, of course, it it just it just takes you back to when you were a kid. It sounds tremendous. You mentioned, though, that this is for the, the galas for a charity. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's it, I mean, this Rancho Obi-Wan is non for profit. So all of the money that Rancho Obi-Wan gets because it's a membership, too. I've been a member for years and it just because it's a museum. It's a Star Wars museum and culture. And so the money that he earns from the memberships, from the gala, from all the fundraising doesn't go towards the collection. It goes towards running the museum the electricity the power you know make it keep keeping it clean keeping it nice uh making it uh the wonderful place the mecca that it is mm-hmm. everything that he has is all from his own wallet i mean he's mm-hmm. just been you know he's he's a writer he worked for lucasfilm for a long time he's he's now as i said retired from lucasfilm but that that's uh all all him so that that's why it's non for profit because they they need stuff to keep things going got it Got and they're doing beautifully. Uh, it's going going great. I mean, I haven't looked at the books or anything, of course, but it just is really awesome. And there's also a nice thing about the gala is there are so many people there that people know from just Star Wars fans and people who work on some of the things. And there's a lot of people there from Lucasfilm, especially this time there were. Did you see the announcement this week for, about Star Wars Project Porg? Oh, that yeah, we um, we talked about that. I, I was actually sitting, um, not sitting, I was standing with and talking with Pablo Hidalgo mm-hmm. and Brian Young from Full of Sith and, and Star Wars author Cole Horton. Mm-hmm. And we were all talking about that and having a lot, having a lot of fun talking about that. It sounds like it's going to be pretty entertaining. Yeah, I mean, it's the comparison that people are making is the Tamagotchis, those little devices from the late eighties, early nineties, where you had to feed and you know oh, clean, yeah. clean up the poop of your your creature or would mutate on you in fact sure. they, they've just now they put out a 20th anniversary version of these and here's my 24 year old daughter like uh uh-huh, i have to go feed this thing how great is that but yeah the evidently project porg the gimmick of this thing which is being done by the ilmx lab the r&d folks at lucasfilm this augmented reality experience is that you're put in, basically in charge of a handful of porgs, and you have to feed them, you have to play with them, and you have to keep track of them, or bad things will happen. Well, you can't have that. You don't you don't feed them after midnight, right? Or is that something different? Well, I, I think you don't feed them to Wookiees, period. That's true. So the, the guys at the event were aware that this was coming to market, or had some of them worked on it? or uh, They didn't say. They didn't say. They just knew. They heard about the press release, and, they're, you know, everybody loves porgs, so... Mm-hmm. That was very entertaining. Um, I want to tell you one quick story about when I was there, too. I mentioned the auction. Mm-hmm. Uh, a pretty magical thing happened that made me feel like, oh, gosh, I think I've arrived. I, I feel very, very blessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always do when it comes to Star Wars. It's, it's done a lot of great things for me. Mm-hmm. But when the auction was about to start, I walked in with um, one of the guys from Lucasfilm, which is a great guy. His name is Pete Vilmer. Mm-hmm. And Steve was at the front of the auction, and he stood up. And he looked over my direction, he started waving, and I thought, oh, he's, he's waving at Pete. He and Pete are good mm-hmm. friends. But I turned around, and Pete wasn't even, uh, he wasn't waving at Pete. He was mm-hmm. waving at me. So oh. it, it was almost like a surreal moment. Like, the people parted, 
And Steve walked <laughs> off of the the place where he was auctioning because he runs the auction. And he walked right towards me. He goes, Dan, I'm so glad you're here. And he gave me this big hug. And I thought, oh my gosh, I feel so blessed. Years ago, when before I even had a podcast, I just saw, always saw pictures of him with collectors. And I thought, wow, that guy mm-hmm. is the coolest guy on the planet. And now he and I are buddies. And it's it's pretty pretty wonderful. All of that is, is on the back of the all of the great work you've done over at Coffee with Kenobi, which if you're listening to this, you really should be listening to Dan's other podcast. But, but that's not the only offshoot of Coffee with Kenobi, is it? No, there's we have uh, Comics with Kenobi, Lattes with Leia. We have Resistance Reactions and Legends Library. We, ha- we have a lot of fun over there. But thank you very much for your kind words. I, I truly do appreciate that. I want to say something that's going to make Aaron Adams really jealous. Can I do that? Certainly. Okay. So, Aaron, this is for you, buddy. I thought of you when I was there. So, Saturday, Clayton, Sandell, and I were at Lucasfilm getting our picture with the fountain and just hanging out and talking with people. And we were invited, just at the moment, right place, right time kind of thing, to go inside to the premiere theater, which is the movie theater inside Lucasfilm that they use to preview, uh, let's say, season finales of Clone Wars and Rebels or season premieres or just big things like that. Or when they have contests where you get to go to Lucasfilm and watch A New Hope or things like that. This is the theater where it happens. And so they said, hey, Ryan Coogler, the writer-director of Black Panther, is here. And he is screening Black Panther for the VES Visual Effects Society. Do you guys want to come in and watch that with him? And Jim, when someone asks you something like that, the answer is always yes, of course. So we went in and got to see the film. And I, I've loved, I've always loved Black Panther anyway. But seeing it like that and, and getting to hear him talk with members of the of the effects team who worked on it and talking about the colors and, and what Black Panther's costume meant when it was purple and it would absorb kinetic energy and or what Killmonger's was and, and just lighting and him going to Africa for research for the film. And it, it was just, it was almost a religious experience. Mm. It, was, it was very, very cool. I wish you could have been there. Well, that is so, I mean, more to the point, I didn't know about the Visual Effects Society part of this story because back when the Visual Effects Society used to do their symposiums, in fact, one of my very favorite times ever was the year that Attack of the Clones came out. They did basically a three-day symposium where I want to say fully half of the programming was related to Attack of the Clones and just the stories that Dave Carson told about working on the Yoda battle with Count Dooku. Yeah. Oh, my God. Before even the script is, is written, Dave gets the breakdown of what George wants to do in the movie. And he, he, re- he reads this, you know, like one-line description of, Yoda has, you know, an epic battle with Count Dooku. And he read it and he said he put his head down in his desk because it's like, oh, oh God, how am I going to do this? He actually, he went into George and basically begged. It's like, look, you know, he's 600 years old. He can't suddenly be this guy who leaps around and waves a lightsaber. You got to give me something that sort of eases the audience into this. So that whole moment where Dooku and, and Yoda are throwing lightning bolts back, that was Dave. Dave insisted on give me that story beat so I can remind the audience that this little wizened raisin of a guy is hugely powerful. I may have told you this story, but when he went to the very first public screening of Attack of the Clones and he can't concentrate on the movie because he's like, 
and we're going to get to the scene where Count Dooku is fighting with Yoda, and I'm going to be the guy who ruins Star Wars forever for everyone. And so he's sitting there in the audience watching this, and the audience loves it. They they erupt with applause, and he said, this three-year wait came off of my chest, and I didn't think we'd be able to pull it off. I didn't think, you know, he said, but my team was talented enough to do this. But yeah, oh God, I, I just, I loved it. You were there for the for the visual effects society again because when you're there with those folks you get the hood popped on a movie in a way you never i mean i can you can watch a blu-ray and listen to every single special feature but it's nothing like being in the room with the people who've spent three years of their life working on a movie they know that's right every shot and more to the point oh that was cool but let me tell you about what got cut out of that scene or that's right. when the budget got cut how we had to figure out how to fix that and that sort of thing but see and i think that i wish everyone could could see that and be a part of that in because the the thing is, and what I, what I I've learned over the years of working on coffee with Kenobi is that for us it's entertainment, mm. it's fun, it's something we talk about at our water coolers mm. or in our with our friends and our families. But for them, this is their job, this is their livelihood, this is how they feed their families and are able to support them, and this is a passion for them. And it, seeing them talk about this is it's more than entertainment for them; it's their livelihood. And and you're right, it just kind of comes to life. In ways that a Blu-ray can't really capture. No, absolutely. Though, I, sorry, I don't, I don't mean to extend this story, but you have to tell people what it's like to be in a theater like that, where the, the folks who make the movies actually watch the stuff, the, the work in progress, and, you know. You can't even imagine what the surround sound is like in the premiere theater of Lucasfilm. First of all, just walking in there, and, and my friend Tom Gross, who uh, does the news for Coffee with Kenobi, he and I were talking about this because he went with me last year. When you walk in there, the acoustics in that room, you can just, you're like in a recording studio. I was in a recording studio when I did voiceover work for that Target commercial back in 2016 for Target and Rogue One, and it, it's similar to that, but even more intense, and so you just know you're in for something, and then Anytime anything happens, the music, the sound, just the bass, the, it's its absolutely incredible. It, it's Think of the most wonderful surround sound system you've ever heard and multiply that by 20, and that's what it's like to watch a movie in there. The only time I've kind of had that sort of experience is they were doing a press day at Pixar for Cars 3, and I was flying out from New Hampshire to do this. There was some issue, and I winded up getting there late. I mean, super, super late. The, the press event had started at like 4.30 in the afternoon and at 6 o'clock, but the, God love the people at Pixar. They, they, they sent a town car, and the guy, I walked outside. He grabbed me. We threw a bag in the car, and then it, it was Lightspeed Dandor. I mean, I've never, this is <laughs> San Francisco, rush hour traffic, and this guy folded space and time. We made it to uh, the Emeryville campus from the airport, no lie, in a half hour. They race me over to the door, and they make me sign all of these releases. And then they rush me into the Pixar theater, and they, they apologize that they go. It's like, look, everybody else is at the, the after party, and they're eating right now, we're, we're, so we're just showing this for you. And so they take me dead center of the theater, and the, this, this attendant sit, sits me down and said, this is John Lasseter's chair. Sit here. And then it's like, okay, roll them. And, you know, and they proceed to run 20 minutes of Cars 3 for me. But again, it, that's the closest I've ever been to a Hollywood bigwig. I mean, right down to the, oh, roll them. But yeah, sat, I was right there in John Lasseter's butt print, which 
now, given everything that's been going on, I guess that's not as good a story as it, it might be. Yeah. <laughs> tricky. But tricky. But but anyway, yeah. So I, I, I know of what you speak. You're in there. You've never seen a picture this bright, this clear. And the sound was amazing. And in fact, well, Oh, yeah. And I don't know what they did as the lights lowered in the, um, the Lucasfilm Theater. I, I hope they did something similar. Because literally, as the lights go down in the Pixar Theater... First, you hear like natural sound come up, like crickets and that sort of thing. And then you look up and it's a ceiling full of stars and a comet flies across the sky. And then the movie starts. So that's great. I, I hope they do something similar to Lucas. So they just kind of jumped into it. Ah, well, right. But yeah, but that might have been who knows? Who knows? Well, anyway, it sounds yeah. like an amazing time. And, and again, I am just from having seen the little bits and pieces that were featured in the Star Wars toys exhibit or episode of the toys that made us i just it just sounds amazing and and you're right the next gala will have to figure out how to get me out there but yeah oh man you you will not regret it it is it is an absolute ball all right so we've got lattes with leia we've got all the, uh, that stuff on your side of the fence my side of the fence the disney dish podcast with Luntesta. we got fine-tuning with drew taylor we got Marvel Us Disney with, as, as you mentioned, the amazing Aaron Adams, who is going to be really jealous of your Ryan Coogler story. We've got <laughs> Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. And hopefully the next time we get together to do another looking at Lucasfilm, I, I'm sure we'll have something just as good to share. I think so. Well, on behalf of Dan Z, thanks for listening. And we'll talk again soon, okay? Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network.